Welcome to Diversity Connects Us. This podcast highlights lived experiences and inspirational stories of strength and tenacity. We will share profound and courageous dialogues that influence diversity, equity, and inclusion by breaking the barriers and labels of stereotypes, confronting biases, and offering best practices to achieve a more significant, cultural, and emotionally intelligent mindset. One's racial identity no longer predicted how one fares. In reality, statistical analysis often reveals that racial identity is a measurable, significant, and persistent predictor of labor market outcomes. You might also be wondering what this has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. That illustrates the many facets that fall under the umbrella of DEI. This should come as no surprise when we consider the origins of race as a social construct, the racial disparities we observe across any number of economic outcomes. We are excited to have you here with us today. This conversation is going to be illuminating. I am looking forward to all of you meeting my guests today. We value your feedback and opinions. Please drop them in the chat. We intend to respond to as many comments and questions from our audience. This takes a great deal of effort to pull off. So I am eternally grateful to all of my loyal guests. Every week we create new content and looking forward to subscribing to our YouTube channel to keep up with us. My name is Rochelle Carrier and I'm a DEI consultant and authoress of Emotional Intelligence, a toolkit for managing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And for a living, I help thought-provoking leaders implement DEI plans and reframe their cultural mindsets. Thank you today for joining us as we continue to share the different voices in the DEI space. Today, we have two amazing influencers. Tammy is the founder and CEO of PCQ Consulting, and she consults with domestic and international companies to help them improve their culture and develop sustainable DEI initiatives driven first by the culture that supports diverse candidates. Tammy has worked primarily in the healthcare space before starting her own company in 2019. Her passions include people's work and sustainable fashion. When she is not helping people be their best selves in the workplace, she is helping them discover their styles and what they want their style to say about them in and outside the workplace. Another trailblazer, Nikki Lanier, is the CEO of Harper Slade, a racial equity advisory firm focused on helping organizations advance equity for some and equality for all. Nikki is a dexterous division executive, having led teams in several settings, including manufacturing, government, higher education, HR consulting, healthcare, K-12, and central banking. Nikki earned a Juris Doctor from the University of Miami School of Law, a bachelor's degree in journalism from Hampton University, and holds a certification in collective bargaining from Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. In addition, she has served as an adjunct MBA professor for the University of Louisville College of Business 
where she also serves on its board of advisors. We are going to welcome the ladies. Thank you so much for tuning in. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm so honored to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. We are so excited to have this conversation and we're going to jump right into it. What do you think are the three biggest challenges, Nikki, today regarding racial equity? Um, I think the overarching challenge with racial equity en masse, I mean, that's inside of work and all the other many systems in which this work must advance, is that we have never, ever seen what we are purporting to have employers and organizations embrace. That is this idea of race being equal, the presumption of humanity, the presumption of mattering without context and without asterisk, without footnote and without parentheses Mm. is an entirely uncommon reality that our world has never faced. Black and brown citizens have always had to claw our way to marginal mattering, contextual Mm. mattering, And so this idea of kind of blanket racial equity, that is the parity and kind of amplified equality of people of color is just unprecedented. So I think that's one of the biggest things is that it is entirely counterculture and there is no real roadmap for it. It's hard for people to vision it. The second issue is because of that, we tend to assign so many definitions to it in the same way that we've done with diversity. We assign so many definitions to it that we spend a lot of time kind of stewing and spiraling around and how best to define it that we never really get to the real work. Mm-hmm. And the third, at least from my view and in my practice, is that we don't understand the economic imperative associated with continuing to be bad at it, continuing to not really, in a fulsome way, address the realities and the constraints that have come with the cumulative muting and stunting and marginalization of people of color that now presents itself as an economic issue that the entire country has to reckon with. Mm -hmm. I like that you said that there's no real definition, right? Like when you say you do DEI, each of us who do this work will have a different idea about (laughs) what that is. And I said something similar today that that's why I think racism is so hard to wrap our arms around. Because if you ask each of us, what is racism? Whether you're a black person or a brown person or a white person, we're all going to have a different definition outside of what the web's definition said. If we all said, tell me a racist act, we will all have different ideas of what is and is not a racist act. So we're trying to solve this big problem and none of us can agree on what the answer is to the problem. And so I find that's probably one of the hardest things that we have to contend with as DEI strategists. So I'm curious that as a person who does this work, have you developed tools that helps company kind of bridge this racial inequity divide within their organization to help them kind of bridge that gap of why there aren't more black and brown people within the workspace? My practice is fairly unique in that I'm not necessarily focused on the doing the stuff and things of racial yeah, yeah. equity. I'm really interested in the conditions that get rise to incubating a new belief system around amplifying people of color that then flowing from that, there's new thinking that helps to protect this new belief system and then the stuff and things and the doing. So in terms of the tools, I think it's important. The very first thing that any organization, any leader should embark on is a full examination of your current state belief system related to this work because the activities the stuff and things of it really is not effectual. There's no permanency to that. And there's no overarching 
economic, workforce development, right. social justice-related, sustainable changes that come from that. Rather, I think we have to get to the heart and mind of the work. It is the harder work. So I spend a lot of time helping employers unpack what's the current social norms that are currently yes. in place yes. in your yes. workplace, yes. what's already here that is thwarting even the most sincere, the most earnest efforts yes. around DEI. How do you start thinking about your own relationship with race and racism? Where did that come mm-hmm. from? And why must we jettison some of that thinking or recast a new way of thinking about that thinking in order to start incubating new belief systems that help us understand how we find permanency in this work? I mean, lots of engagement tools, if you will, that, that I employ as a part yeah. of that. Lots of programs and immersions that I try to help employers better experience so that they understand how to think about readying themselves to right. cultivate an environment for this kind of thriving. You know, Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say that that is the tool that you want to use, right? That recasting the way people think, because that's the hardest part of this work. You can get to the stuffing part later. We can put in policies and practices and procedures. Yes. But if I don't get into why you think the way you think, why you believe the way you believe, why your leaders think the way they do, then we're just doing the fluff work that doesn't change anything. And when I leave, when you leave, everything goes right back to what it was because we haven't dealt with why these thoughts exist, why these behaviors exist, how many of these behaviors are conscious and unconscious, and just really digging into the behaviors and the thought process of why people believe what they believe. So I love that that is your tool. Let's sit down and engage these thoughts more so than me coming in and creating this manual for you or this checklist for you. I mean, that's helpful. These are very helpful. But I think most of what DEI is, is about really engaging people in debate, conversation, and thought and challenging people. And it's okay to be challenged and be uncomfortable. That's how we grow. But in a way that allows people to be uncomfortable, but come back into the conversation with us. Because if I get you too uncomfortable, then you may be in the room with me, but you're not in that conversation with me anymore. Yeah. And I think that's why the why and the how matter so much yes. for me, Right, maybe even more than the what. So yeah. I think we have to be really careful that there's a lot of delicacy that's associated with this. I mean, we, we yeah. have to be delicate with where people are because none of us are the architects of what we are now looking to dismantle. We all inherited yes. it. Some of us enable it more yes. than yes. we know, but yes. we didn't create it. We didn't create it. So we have to be careful with messages that feel like they're laced with guilt and anger and venom, because again, not effectual. People have come to where they are and their understanding of race and mattering and contextualizing all of that. This hundreds of years in the making of this kind of thinking. And it's not just white people that think that. I mean, we all do. So, several of us, see, I know even I, yes. as a black woman with amazing confidence, have to battle back messages around yes. my own yes. something that the yes. world keeps sending to me. So I think that's really important. And then also the pacing and the sequencing of the work, you know, the pacing and the sequencing of the work so that we're really thoughtful about how to effect demonstrable real change for generations Mm -hmm. to come. Right. Yeah, me too. You know, it's interesting. We mentioned, and we touched upon it about unconscious biases. And I think I strongly believe and fundamentally agree with both of you that that's where it comes from. And if we're not addressing the unconscious biases, then like you said, Tammy, you know, the policies and procedures and the manuals won't help because then it becomes robotic and it's not a cultural mindset that you're instilling within yourself and with the other leaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
Mm, that's right. We have to really be careful with that. And just again, grace is kind of the word that I've used to describe my practice. And I hope that that describes my behaviors as I practition in this practice. But I think that's, that's so very important. You know, it took us 400 years plus to get to this point. And, you know, it's not going to change overnight, but we do, we do the acceleration, even in the midst of that grace giving yeah. is still important, just given the demography, just given the realities yeah. of the yeah. demography yeah. that we're facing. Yeah. I think we don't want to get stuck in grace and don't move people beyond grace. And I think sometimes we put our foot on the gas too far ahead and you kind of jerk people. And sometimes we don't put enough of our feet on the gas to move people along. So it's finding that, that gentle balance between grace and now we're moving grace. And now we're moving grace. And now we're moving to keep people moving along, but you don't want to, you know, throw your foot on the gas because you're going to lose people that way. And for me, I believe this is true for you, Nick. And I know it's true for Rochelle. What's more important to me in doing this work is that I impact the people that have the ability to impact the people in the workplace for the better. And that's not going to look the way I do my work and the way Nikki does her work. And Rochelle. It all may look different, but I think at the end of the day, if the work that we do matters, particularly for people who look like us, black and brown people, I want to do work that when I leave, I've changed somebody's mindset or I've got them to really consider why they need to change their mindset and how that impacts people every day in their workplace. That's it. Mm, I agree. Nikki, what do you think are the biggest obstacles you have right now as an employee attorney? Well, to be fair, I'm actually not practicing law and haven't for some time. God, Lord, <laughs> Lord, no. Nobody would want that, Rochelle. Believe me. It is not like riding a bike. So I haven't practiced law in a while, I think. But I'll answer the question a little differently. What I'm facing, I don't know there are obstacles per se, but I'm still, 2022, finding employers who are fairly entrenched and seeing this work as episodic, kind of bolt-on to yeah. the work and not integral to it. So yeah. I think one of my bigger challenges is, quite frankly, trying to determine as I am building this startup of Harper Slade, how much energy outlay do I want to expend in spaces like that when I know that there's so many other employers that are assented already to the work, at least in theory, maybe not in practice, but curious enough about it to hear how to be better at it, even if mm -hmm. it's incrementally versus those that are not. So that's a challenge to me in my work. And quite frankly, it's a challenge to me in my humanity and how to reconcile even that. I mean, it's hard to do the work and also it's hard to both be the doctor and the patient, I guess. And sometimes it's hard to reconcile what those messages continue to mean in terms of my own, like, you know, it's like a visceral response as a black woman, how to respond to this corporate monolith that just is mm -hmm. unmoved by the realities that are kind of before us in a fairly acute way. So that's one. And then I think the second challenge, and it's not so much of a challenge when I get to talk about it and explain it, is helping people understand the economic impact of all of this work. You know, I've been a long time student of capitalist structures, as I'm sure you all have as well. And I know that capital as a matter of structure is not moved by arguments like right thing to do yes. or even yes. social justice. Yes. And to some extent, even just bottom line, like this is good for our bottom line. Like, so without those feel kind of ethereal and not really capital doesn't know what to do with that. They're just not built to respond yeah. to those kinds of arguments and those kinds of premises. But 
What we all know to be true is that the demography of the country is changing in pretty demonstrable ways. We know that by 2045, minorities will be the majority in the workforce. That also means we must be the majority in the middle class at least. Middle class at least. So that's the sixty dollars to $120,000 income earner. In order to continue to sustain the sustenance of our middle class, we'll be relying more on blacker and browner people to do that. Mm -hmm. That, again, is unprecedented. We have never seen a country where we've relied on this darker citizen to buoy anything of substance. And yet Mm -hmm. our entire economic footing, and I'm not trying to be melodramatic about it. I mean, this is the reality that's facing us. Yeah, so we, we have to find a way to assure that black and brown, in a very saturated way, a part of that middle class experience by way of consumption and production. And, you know, when we think about the health of the middle class, that helps us understand our taxing infrastructure and our monetary policy theories and our fiscal policy theories and our geopolitical footing and our G7 standing. All of that is relying on the health of the middle class. And more and more, we'll, we will have to have more black and brown folks in the middle class in order to make sure that those continue to be viable realities for us. Those middle class jobs happen in the workplace. And the biggest impediment to economic mobility within work is racism and marginalization and muting and stunting and all of the bias that tends to manifest in all systems. I mean, it's not just workplace, but workplaces where I've chosen to toil and to spend my time because that is where the paycheck is doled out, if you will. So that's where the income is made. And that that's what determines whether or not we can find our way into the middle-class strata in meaningful ways. So yeah. sometimes having employers understand that argument is like, oh boy, uh-oh. You know? So if you made it, even if you don't get with DEI and you don't even understand, want to understand the principles, you do at some point want to retire. And you want to be able to have a world, leave a world to your children and to yourself even. I mean, you know, this is 23 years from now where you have sound social security systems, where you have sound economic platforms where the production rates, consumption rates, where GDP, like all those things are super important to the American economy. And you want to be able to help be contributive to a world where that continues to be so. Guess what that means? Black and brown folks got to win too. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I think also what happens in the workspace is that we're not often represented so like you said, you know, 2025, 2045, 2045, yeah. 2045, that there's going to be that many more black and brown people in the workplace, but what roles are they fulfilling? Are they in CEO positions? Are they, you know, board level positions? Are they supervisorial leadership positions to be able to bring on, you know, more diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace to allow them to be able to have this different cultural mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the placement matters. I mean, I'm super interested from my work in the income earning range, mm-hmm. primarily, secondarily, mm-hmm. I'm super interested in the roles that are attached to that level of income. Cause you know, theoretically you could be an individual contributor without decision-making authority per se, and still find your way in the middle class. And that's meaningful. Right. But the more we become accustomed to exercising and experiencing black yeses and nos in -hmm. work that mobilize action Mm -hmm. and transform policy and reset realities in the way that culture unfolds and is incubated in the workplace, I think we'll find more stickiness Mm -hmm. and more connection to DEI as a matter of course. But for now, 
And in the foreseeable future, by and large, we still are and will remain being fairly reliant on white yeses and nos Mm -hmm. in the workplace and beyond. And so how folks like the three of us ladies are able to connect with those leaders and help shape and mold new norms and new realities around this work is going to be important. As we reach the top of the Diversity Connects Us Hour, I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning in. This podcast highlights lived experiences and inspirational stories of strength and tenacity. We share profound and courageous dialogues that influence DEI by breaking the barriers and labels of stereotypes, confronting biases, offering best practices to achieve a more significant and cultural mindset. Stay tuned as we continue to share our voices in the DEI space. My name is Rochelle Carrier, and I'm a DEI personal consultant and EQ coach and authoress of two ebooks, Emotional Intelligence, a Toolkit for Managing Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and Know Yourself to Know Your Employees. The link to purchase the ebooks are in the show notes. Also, be on the lookout for my and Dr. Rudell's coaching workshops, presentations, and webinars. I also want to thank my producer, Titan32. That's his tag name on Fiverr.com. He does our beautiful edits. To trend with us, hashtag diversity connects us.